Welcome to Rare Book School Evening Lecture. Our speaker this evening is an old friend of Rare Book School, a sometime faculty member, sometime and continuing student in Rare Book School, Jackie Dooley, who's head of Special Collections and University Archives at the University of California at Irvine. Her talk this evening, Mastering the Machines, Special Collections Librarians, Technology, and the Future. Good evening. I first wrote a version of this paper for a, an RB, uh, a Rare Books and Manuscripts section, RBMS, pre-conference in 1996 for a session that was titled Thinking About Technology for which I was asked to consider ways in which special collections librarians and managers can cope with technology and successfully incorporate it into our day-to-day -day operations. This is a topic of pervasive daily concern to nearly everyone in our profession, as evidenced by the omnipresence of technological issues at virtually any professional or academic conference. And I'll reveal the moral of my story right here at the beginning. Scorning technology or failing to keep up with it will not serve you well. And uh, as the title of this talk Im uh, implies, it's, this is very much told from the perspective of a special collections, rare books, and manuscripts librarian, which is the only perspective I have. So I hope that those of you who have another uh, avocation or vocation connected to rare books will find also some kind of um, useful thoughts in it. Rare book librarianship is a profession which assumes that the past holds lessons for the future. And as I began to consider my topic, I meandered back through the years that I had spent, that I have spent as a special collections librarian, currently 18 years and counting, and remembering how little technology there was in special collections libraries at the dawn of my own professional life, and considering the coping and the incorporating that I've already been through. It frankly astonished me to realize that as a graduate student at UCLA in the early 1980s, I typed every single paper I wrote on a memory list, type electric typewriter. We studied cataloging without ever once logging on to OCLC or Arlen, and the UCLA Library School, which was by no means behind the times, had one paltry little dial-up terminal with a cheap dot matrix printer for use by students learning fee-based online searching. When it came time to finish my thesis, I was awarded the great prize of about 20 hours of free computer time for keying my text at an IBM mainframe terminal using a simplistic text editor named Wilbur. I wasn't allowed to save this file permanently, however, so at this point I'm not entirely sure why I bothered to accept the prize, perhaps the novelty factor. Freshly minted MLS in hand, off I went to the Library of Congress in the autumn of 1982, where I became a cataloger of prints and photographs. The marked format for visual materials was still in the process of being invented, so here's how I worked. I entered my catalog records in tagless, fieldless card style into a proprietary word processing machine called a CompuCorp, which spit them out onto tractor-fed 3x5 cardstock, which I glued onto what were called 6 up sheets, the only use I've made in my career of the once ubiquitous library page. These cards were then sent across the street to the cataloging distribution service, whose staff reproduced however many copies of each card I had requested. When the cards came back, I typed the added entries and subjects onto them using an electric typewriter, and then I filed the cards. About the time I left LC in 1985, the library was beginning to jettison the proprietary machines and buy a few PCs, and work also was beginning in earnest on the first analog, not yet digital, video disc projects. I joined Special Collections at the University of California in San Diego early in 1985, where, since this was a fairly progressive Special Collections department, an IBM PC clone had been purchased. 
It resided in the farthest back corner of the department, well away from staff offices and the reading room, and was used principally by our energetic and creative student assistants for entertainment purposes. We soon began making more pedestrian, albeit functional, uses of the PC, enjoying in the process the many bells and whistles of WordStar 4.2, the state-of-the-art word processing software at the time, uh, such as its ability to reformat a paragraph by invoking a forgettable sequence of control characters. Fourteen years ago, at the 1986 RBMS pre-conference at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, I chaired a seminar session titled Microcomputer Applications for Special Collections. The session enjoyed standing room only attendance and seemed to be very well received, although my notes reveal that we were dispensing a level of information about computing that's probably now taught at the kindergarten level. A library administrator on the panel informed the audience that they might not be able to justify having secretaries now that we could all do our own typing online and alerted us to the fact that libraries might eventually aim to have one PC for each two staff members. Another speaker described a wonderful new service called BitNet, which was being subscribed to by many research libraries for something called electronic mail. I warned the audience never ever to put less than 256K of RAM on a PC and bragged about our new machine at UCSD that had 640K. Some listeners met this news with a certain dismay since at a similar session a mere two years earlier, a speaker had quite correctly told our BMS members that they only needed 64. The thank you letters I wrote to my session participants were composed and printed using an electric typewriter. Most com more computers gradually populated the landscape in UCSD special collections. The more exalted members of the library staff actually got to have them right on their desks instead of having to share. And in 1988, email arrived in our department, relegating that previous wunderkind of instant communication technologies, the facts, to the hapless status of last spring's debutante. An amazing new class structure began to grow up around who had email and who didn't. And until I joined the elite, I could be pretty sullen about the whole thing. WordPerfect showed up at some point, and paragraphs began magically to reformat themselves automatically. Gradually, pretty much everybody got a PC and email. Training and database management software was all the rage. Much of the paper cluttering up our offices consisted of email printouts, and then things seemed to settle down for a few years. Sometime early in 1990, the library's slide curator bought a little machine that could make a computer file out of a 35 millimeter slide. She invited several of us over for a demonstration, including showing us how you could manipulate the image and do things like draw a mustache on the Mona Lisa and turn her hair green. We thought it was all pretty entertaining, but couldn't quite imagine how it would ever be useful in a library. For example, once you had this image file, where could you display it? And how could you include the cataloging data? In other words, what good was it? The library director wanted to know whether the machine had been purchased with state funds. <laughs> I think I still had only 640K of RAM on my machine by the time I left San Diego for the Getty Trust in 1992. I can't hold a job. And I found myself somewhat surprised by my new computing environment. A lot was missing that I had thought was by now ubiquitous in any civilized workplace. For example, although the PCs that populated the landscape were fine, excuse me, fast, shiny, and well-kempt, a remarkably narrow segment of the population had one. And those PCs that did exist weren't networked. Proprietary terminals of various stripes were much more the norm. Few people other than systems staff and a few enterprising reference librarians had email and everybody was a bit mystified, perhaps even worried, when I said that I simply had to have it too. Meanwhile, enterprising people elsewhere had by now identified a number of interesting uses for digitized images, like UCSC's mustachioed Mona Lisa. 
And while at the Getty, I became a member of an, a research libraries group task force on photographic preservation, which was embarking on a couple of projects related to digitization of archival photo collections. From its inception in mid-92 until the group wound down a couple of years later, tracking the state of digitization practices and technology was a lot like riding a runaway freight train. Of the many interesting moments we experienced, I remember one from an October 1993 meeting very clearly when Steve Henson from Duke University said, hey, have you guys seen Mosaic yet? It's really cool. Only one other person had, so then the two of them had to describe, try to describe what it was, which wasn't easy. But we all saw it soon thereafter, and the runaway freight train metaphor took on a whole new meaning. For those of you who weren't tuned in yet, in 1993, Mosaic was the original web interface preceding Netscape and Internet Explorer. Back to the Getty, but only for a moment. A Getty Trust-wide computing network, a major infusion of PCs to replace dumb terminals, worldwide web access, and email for the masses, all finally arrived simultaneously on the desktop of Getty employees in December 1994, just as I was heading for the southbound freeway exit to take my present position at UC Irvine. Why the slow automation timeline at wealthy Getty, where money is so much less of an issue than elsewhere? Well, the trust is more a business than an academic institution, and I guess it was on the corporate world's timeline rather than the academic world's for discovering the power of new communications media to transform how America and the world do business. Higher education had been at the forefront of the internet sea change back in the 80s, while the business world began to buy in only recently. I've now been at UC Irvine for five and a half years, and I guess we're in pretty good shape technologically for a special collections department, which is probably what I would have said about most of the environments I've worked in at the time I was in them. There's a network PC on every desk, a good website is a universal necessity, a scanner with image processing, software is in the workroom, no one could possibly function without email or FTP or Adobe Acrobat, it's hard even to find an electric typewriter when you really need one, and we're under the same pressures as everyone else in this room to keep riding the crest of the technological wave. By the way, my PC is now up to 64 megabytes of RAM, rather behind the curve, I fear, which for the record comes out to 10,000% memory inflation on my desktop over the last 15 years. What that might suggest for the next 10 or 15 years, well, brighter bulbs than I are working on it as we speak. And so now that you've heard this, every librarian's overview of nearly 20 automation tinged years and special collections, what might that history have to say to us other than the fact that I'm at daily risk of becoming a dinosaur? What can the recent past teach us about the near future? A few things seem obvious. First, we should all be able to tell by now that we've never had and never will have in our lifetimes a stable status quo in which we have all the hardware and software that we need and can forget about having to keep learning and incorporating new technologies. If we haven't done so already, we must factor into our working environments the need for constant upgrading of the technical skills and knowledge of virtually all staff. And any of us who aren't willing or able to keep adapting to new technologies and rapidly are going to become increasingly marginalized. This has to be a scary proposition for a goodly number of special collections professionals who've been in the business for 18 years or a whole lot longer. And in these days of scarce resources and cutbacks in staffing, it's a difficult reality for us managers to come to terms with as well. In today's environment, nothing can disable a product, an otherwise productive and effective staff member like a poor grasp of a necessary te technological tool, and we let that happen at our peril. The good news, though, is that whenever we hire a newly educated librarian, 
or anyone under the age of 30 or so, they arrive with lots of technical skills and enthusiasm for whatever's coming next. Second, the train's not slowing down, it's speeding up. One need only consider the breathtaking trajectory of the World Wide Web and the Internet as tools for global communications and information. Five years ago, there was still much talk of the rather anemic state of content on the web. Today, the breadth and wealth of resources available in both the commercial and the educational sectors are almost unbelievable, and they continue to grow by leaps and bounds. The smallest mom-and-pop businesses, some of which even sell books, are engaging in e-commerce, and before we know it, we'll all be carrying internet-accessible gizmos in our wallets. Third, the future is completely unpredictable for us technological mortals, and we're going to need all the powers of flexibility that we can muster. I, for one, can't begin to imagine the toys or, or tools, for those of a serious bent, that we'll have to play with in another 20 years. It's a daunting thought, but also thrilling. Can you remember the amazement you felt as the real utility of each new technology entering your workplace became clear? For example, when you finally understood what a, what a CD-ROM was and what that technology would mean for libraries. Now it sounds like old hat. Or what faxing could do for your ability to procrastinate. Or how much telephone tag could be eliminated by using email. Or the possibilities enabled by the invention of digital imaging, Netscape, and the World Wide Web. There's a lot more in store, and I have to assume it'll just get more and more startling in the near future. I'd like to turn now to some thoughts about known technologies and our near future uses of them in special collections. Slender though the published literature of our field is, it does contain some food for thought in this direction, such as a very interesting set of papers on the future of special collections libraries that were delivered at a conference in Oxford and then published in the 1993 issue of the Journal of Library Automation. Uh, by and large, things said in that issue still hold up in terms of thinking about the future of technology. In that issue, distinguished authors such as the Bodleian Library's Clive Hurst, David Seidberg, then at UCLA, and Douglas Greenberg, then at the American Council of Learned Societies, noted that many of the forces at work affecting the way in which we conduct our business, of the many forces at work, technological advances have perhaps the greatest potential to change what we collect, how we manage our collections, and how we provide access to rare and unique materials. What te will technology save us or destroy us? And how practical or appropriate are these new technologies for use by special collections libraries? Our authors pondered. Clive Hurst from the Bodleian, for example, posited that electronic availability of texts will lead to reduced acquisition of original copies. He noted that the same worries surfaced 50 years or so ago when microforms were introduced. But the reputation and reality of microforms as an inconvenient and unattractive medium prevented them from having a noticeable impact on rare book acquisitions. Hearst quite rightly pointed out that the new media, however, are different. The future electronic facsimiles will be attractive, even seductive, he said. This seemed to worry him, but is it necessarily bad news for special collections? If electronic access to a rare text owned by the University of Virginia, for example, allows me to spend my acquisitions budget on a much needed manuscript collection or a unique book, haven't I gained two new resources and lost nothing? And if, on the other hand, I have a viable argument to make for the need to own a local physical copy of the book, either because it's unique in some important way or a local scholar's research requires the artifact, I'll have had an opportunity to highlight some of the attributes of rare books that can't be duplicated in an electronic copy, an opportunity that we can't have often enough. The paper contributed to that issue by David Zeidberg, now director of the Huntington Library, touched upon digitization of photograph collections and he questioned where the money will come from for large-scale conversion of archives, an issue that's still very much on everyone's mind. 
He noted that if UCLA wanted to digitize the Los Angeles Times photo morgue of two million negatives, for example, equipment costs would be trivial compared to an estimated $4 million to scan and catalog the images. He's probably conservative. He also noted that selective scanning in order to reduce costs would cheat researchers out of access to those images not digitized. His caution was healthy, although perhaps a little excessive. We should all be armed with a good explanation of the monetary, legal, and intellectual impediments to large-scale conversion of collections. But we also need to think as creatively as possible, adapting what we've learned from our use of past technologies. For example, would selective scanning of a large collection of unprinted documentary negatives be so different from selective printing or printing onto microfilm, a time-honored approach used by UCLA when, it, when processing another uh, photo morgue, the LA Daily News, in the early 1980s? Also to be considered is the fact that digital conversion and storage of a negative is actually cheaper than wet printing and boxed storage of a photograph on paper, not to mention that an image file on disk consumes no precious shelf space. And of course, it can have the added benefit of being made available planet-wide. Regarding the high cost of providing intellectual access to a digitized body of images, Steinberg was quite right to note the prohibitive cost of item-level cataloging, which was at the time the only approach being implemented in imaging projects but also a cost no different than what it would have cost to provide that same access to original photographs rather than digitized versions. By now in 2000, however, methods of facilitating collective descriptive techniques for archival collections, such as a photo morgue, are already with us, on which more later. In his paper in that same 1993 journal, Douglas Greenberg, now president of the Chicago Historical Society, but not for long, uh, proclaimed with some enthusiasm the inevitability of a future in which digital access to everything will make physical special collections and archives irrelevant. He noted the boon to scholarship that internet access to electronic full-text facsimiles will be, in that the time-consuming drudgery of tracking down both citations and physical materials will be largely eliminated, leaving scholars much more time to engage in the actual work of reading and synthesizing and writing, imagining a very well-organized internet. All this will be for the good when it comes to pass, and it has begun to. But I take exception to the chief remaining purpose in life that Greenberg identified for special collections librarians, simply that of helping scholars navigate the network. After all, we'll still have to collect the materials in the first place, organize and describe them, preserve them, make the choices about which of them to digitize, since we do know that it won't be all of them, and participate in the design of their electronic implementation. The future does signal a shift in the percentage of effort that special collections librarians will expend on acquisition of originals versus provision of access to both local and remote resources. But there can be no remote access unless some library has acquired and cataloged an original. And although we may increasingly not keep all physical originals, there will remain powerful reasons to keep many of them. Moving on from these perspectives of 1993, which remarkably seem as valid today as they were then, Let's consider some of the expectations that technology places on us. With regard to digitization of collections, for example, what librarian in this room tonight has not been asked when your major manuscript collections will all be digitized and available via the web? We're all painfully aware that few people not knowledgeable about libraries or archives understand how daunting a task this really is, not to mention how expensive. But as I mentioned earlier in the photo collection context, it's important that we have at the ready our reasons for not being quite there yet. And it's equally important that we not allow fear or ignorance of the technology to number among our real reasons. With all of the training opportunities, demonstration projects, and published literature that are available on digitization of collections, there's really no excuse for managers of special collections libraries not to have a reasonable grasp of the essential. 
and I would advise any who have not yet done so to get there soon. This is not to say, mind you, that I'm arguing for digitization of collections as everyone's first professional duty and priority. I am saying that there's no excuse for lack of knowledge about the issues. Special collections librarians are really in the hot seat on this one since it's so apparent to everyone that digitization and internet access hold such power to democratize access to our tightly held treasures. Another area in which we must come to terms with external expectations relates to our priorities for technical services in special collections. I may have my rare book catalogers license revoked for saying so, but I believe that above all, we absolutely must get all of our holdings into online catalogs and soon, like yesterday, regardless of how minimal this means that some of our records must be for a time and how inadequate those records may be for some purposes. Call them in process records, not minimal level cataloging to make the situation more palatable and to improve the case for enhancing them down the line. How many years has it been since most library users stopped recognizing the existence of manual catalogs? After all, the New York Times reported just last week that few students or researchers want to trudge to a physical library to pull, pull a physical book off the shelf, let alone to search with a complex and mysterious cart catalog. And yes, we all know someone who actually responded when given an opportunity to carry home their favorite drawers before the card catalog went to the bonfire. In fact, perhaps some of you are here tonight. But it hardly behooves us to base our arguments on that portion of our user population viewed by many as the most eccentric. Technology has enabled most library users to search our catalogs remotely from their homes or offices. And if we feel we can justify the expense of providing a good home to collections known only to those who find their way inside our four walls, we're sadly mistaken. A very great source of pride for any rare book or manuscript cataloger should be in knowing that every item in her backlog is recorded online, howsoever briefly, so that curators engaged in collection development, ILL librarians seeking to identify items that may be available for loan, and scholars seeking to, com to complete censuses of copies and other worthy scholarly endeavors can trust in the comprehensiveness of the online record of the library's holdings. Some of you may have heard me tell a relevant anecdote of which I'm perhaps unduly fond. In 1990, I attended rare book school at Columbia to take Paul Needham's wonderful course titled Physical Evidence in Early Printed Books. And as I learned about the types of evidence that an incunabulist may seek in order to date and otherwise analyze early books, the conscientious and curious rare book cataloger in me decided to ask Paul what his expectations are for the information found in library catalog records. I secretly hoped, of course, that he would effusively praise the many carefully crafted notes and special added entries over which so much rare book catalogers of blood has been shed. But alas, he gave me sort of a funny look and then immediately answered, just tell me where the copies are. On the other side of the technical services house, many of us manage a manuscripts processing enterprise. And on this front, technology is bringing us some fabulous new opportunities as well. The advent of encoded archival description, or EAD, means that at long last, the finding aids to archival collections that we so laboriously and expensively prepare are becoming widely available via the internet in a standardized, mutually intelligible, migratable form, linked upward to collection-level marked catalog records, and in some cases, downward to digital images of selected collection materials. As the marked format was for catalogers in the 70s, EAD is certainly being viewed by some as yet another bur burdensome new technology for manuscript processors to master. But as EAD fulfills its promise to make it possible for our finding aids to be intelligently structured and searchable via the internet, as it leads to development of consistent content standards for finding aids, and as it enables far more researchers to find their way to our often underutilized collections, then the payoff earned from our temporary pain will be enormous. 
so far the movement in all these directions is very promising indeed and is increasingly international in scope. A new standard like EAD is expensive to implement, but we shouldn't forget that new technologies are also one of today's most sexy and sought after reasons to give money away. And we need to be sure that we get in line. Within the University of California, for example, the Special Collections and University Archives units of the nine UC campuses submitted in fall 1995 a collaborative proposal for training and infrastructure <laughs> funds to facilitate statewide implementation of EAD. And this proposal earned the distinction of being the first project funded under the university's then one-year-old digital library initiative. $600,000 in state funds were awarded for the project's first two years, together with matching LSTA grant funds awarded by our state library and significant cost sharing from the nine campuses. I confess that we had lots of explaining to do about our proposal. Despite its unquestionable clarity, many highly educated scholars and even competent library directors first asked what an archival finding aid or even an archival collection actually was, and then were concerned about whether such materials had sufficient applicability to K-12 education to warrant so much attention, an expectation not placed, I might note, on projects to electronify scientific journals and other true research materials. But I think it says something about how invisible archival collections had been for a long time to many. Then they were also appalled to think that it would actually cost so much money to achieve our stated goal. But in the end, it seems they understood, and lo and behold, less than four years after we began data conversion, more than 115,000 pages of finding aid data from more than 40 California repositories, not just UC, but many other repositories, populate the online archive of California. And numerous similar projects are springing up across the country, indeed around the planet, often providing the impetus for the birth of new consortia of special collections libraries and other types of cultural heritage repositories as a means of making implementation more affordable and feasible for small and medium-sized institutions. And Virginia just putting together such a consortium, for example. In closing, one thing is certain about the future of special collections in a technological world. We won't succeed in isolation from the rest of the technologically savvy research library community, and our survival does indeed depend on our ability to keep up with the latest. The days of the decorative treasure room as our most hypable asset are long gone. The need to demonstrate the relevance, long-term value, and cost-effectiveness of our collections grows by day as society at large, and library administrators in particular, become less and less tolerant of elitism, narrow audiences, and poorly justified expense. Increasingly, technological ignorance will guarantee obsolescence. The technology per se won't become our business. We in special collections are all practiced to salespeople in raising funds, and building constituencies for our collections. And we can use those skills to sell technology as a tool to improve our ability to get the job done. Tomorrow's most successful special collections librarians will continue to collect and interpret rare materials, integrate a clear understanding of a contemporary scholarship with the ability to address a broader audience, balance the budget prudently, and thoroughly master the machines. And not only tomorrow's special collections librarian, we want to survive and thrive in this business, but also today's. Thank you very much.